been beautiful and I always enjoy seeing you beautiful people. But now I'm real anxious to hear from our speaker, Phil Fee from Newport Beach, California. Phil. Good morning. My name is Phil Petty and I'm an alcoholic. I would like to make one correction on the program. I am listed as being from Los Angeles, California. I am not. Los Angeles, California has a baseball team that will end its season today. I am from Orange County, California, where the playoffs will begin on Tuesday. <laughs> I live in Newport Beach. I, uh, I would like to complain about the catering at this conference, but it's been the best I have uh, seen in, uh, in many a year. I, I've never seen as many people fed as well and as quickly as these people have done for three meals. I think it's been outstanding. I would like to complain about the uh, violent breaking of the ninth tradition by the people who put this conference on. Since the ninth tradition begins, AA as such shall never be organized. And this thing has been organized beautifully. It's run very well, and I want to thank uh, personally Barney and Marnie, which sounds like a third-rate comedy team in a waterfront dive, <laughs> for their efforts here. I also... I think Jerry has done a terrific job, and I want to congratulate the incoming state officers. Uh, for those of you in the back of the room who may not have had a chance to see them closely, I did. And all I can say is, if I lived in Kansas, I think I'd call a bonding company and be sure the premiums were paid for the coming year. <laughs> in all seriousness, it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. Uh, I don't know if there would be anybody attending a first meeting on an occasion like this, but if they did, they would already have experienced some of the relief that I experienced in my first meeting when Rich got up and identified himself as an alcoholic, because Rich doesn't look like one. And of course, Philomena got up and identified herself as an alcoholic, and she doesn't look like one. And the members of the, uh, the state slate here <clears throat> were all introduced to you as alcoholics, and they don't look like alcoholics. And then, of course, if you have any sense of discretion and taste, you have already concluded that I don't look like an alcoholic. <laughs> now, I have been an active member of this fellowship and continuously sober for 17 and a half years, and I would guess that in uh, local meetings, regional, state, national, and international conferences, conventions, and so on, that I have seen upwards of a quarter of a million recovering alcoholics over the years. I have been taking a survey in all of these meetings to find out, uh, or to look for people who look like alcoholics. And I am happy to report that up to and including this morning, I have seen fewer than 10 people in AA meetings who look like alcoholics, every one of whom turned out to be a member of Al-Anon. <laughs> There's a good reason for that. Did you ever make book on a new couple walking in? Which one is the drunk? You know, I am invariably wrong. I, I keep forgetting, if you drank like I did, I was anesthetized for most of my drinking career. Uh, to this day, I don't remember parts of my story, but the poor non-alcoholic spouse has had to live through every rotten minute of it, you know. They are bound to pick up mileage along the way. Luckily, when they get into Al-Anon, they get younger looking quicker than we do, and it all balances out. Uh, 
In the interest of greater AA Al-Anon harmony, I would like to make one other observation to the Al-Anons who are present here today, male and female, and who have done such a tremendous job here this weekend. Your drinking habits are every bit as peculiar to me as mine ever were to you. <laughs> have you ever seen an Al-Anon drink? My wife, Joni, who is here with me, is a good example. She is currently quaffing it down at the rate of about a fifth every two years. <laughs> you give her two of those little plastic drinks they give you on an airplane and it will take her all the way to Hong Kong. As our speaker said last night, if you gave me two of those little plastic drinks and I didn't think you had a bottle to back it up, I would have said, don't tease me, let's not even get started if we're not serious about it. But I'm a great believer in the Al-Anon program, and I say this sincerely. I have seen recoveries in Al-Anon that are every bit as miraculous as any I have ever seen in Alcoholics Anonymous. And so long as this remains a family illness, and I am convinced it is, we will need a family recovery. And I am personally grateful to Al-Anon for the happiness that you have added to my life, uh, not only uh, through my wife, Joan, but also personally in, in attending your meetings and in learning from you. Um, I'm kind of a garden variety drunk. I don't have any tremendous story to tell. Uh, I uh, did most of the things that drinkers do in order to qualify for AA membership. And if you are my kind of drunk, you don't come to Alcoholics Anonymous first. Now my kind of drunk is a phony. And therefore, if you develop my problem, it comes on in reverse. I didn't realize I had a drinking problem until several months after it had become apparent that I was having trouble sobering up. <laughs> and if you're my kind of phony, when that problem arises, you don't go to Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't have been caught dead in here. I went to a posh psychiatrist at a fancy address, and I lied to him, and he didn't help me, so I didn't pay him. <laughs> and then I went to what the book calls Health Farms and Sanitarium. And uh, I had a nice one going. Uh, they treated, uh, it was a combination, alcoholic geriatric institution for some who were aged and some who were alcoholic and some who were both. And uh, they didn't help me either. And I went through the public forms of alcoholism therapy, you know, the hospitals, the jails, the uh, sanitariums and so on. And only after I had gone to all of these was I reluctantly willing to admit that maybe I wouldn't be completely tarnished if I went to one meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I went to a meeting with great reluctance because I was absolutely convinced you were going to break my anonymity, and I knew how you would do it. I went to my first meeting in Long Beach, California in June 1961, and I knew that in one of the days following that meeting, I would run into one or more of you on the street, you would speak to me, and then everybody would know I had been to AA because you were supposed to look like alcoholics. <laughs> and as I previously said, you don't. And I was amazed that night, and I have been amazed at every meeting since, and I am amazed this morning uh, in realizing that the alcoholics of the world are cleverly disguised to look like ordinary human beings. <laughs> And there is great truth in the old cliche that if you can't smell them, you can't tell them. <laughs> so I went to that first meeting with great reluctance. Now, at that time, I had uh, four cents in cash. I had my entire wardrobe on my back. I had an old car that I had terribly overvalued at 150 bucks. And I had almost a full pack of cigarettes. 
And I, uh, I lived in a recovery house for the first two months I was around the program on credit because I had no job and no prospect for getting any. My nearest relative was 2,000 miles away, and if they thought I was coming in their direction, they would have moved further. <laughs> and uh, to this day, I feel close to people who come into AA through recovery houses of one kind or another. Uh, I came and I listened to these meetings, and uh, I had some misgivings about you. Uh, to this day, I have always been suspicious of newcomers who come in here and seem to buy this thing too quickly. Because, do you remember how you felt the first time you saw the 12 steps? I thought that was the biggest joke I had ever seen. I thought if I tried to live by those principles, I would be at the mercy of every door-to-door -door book salesman and used car dealer in the world. That they might just as well write trick right across my forehead. I thought it was totally unworkable because like every other newcomer, I had never had any exposure to a program based upon rigorous honesty and therefore I didn't know whether it would work or not. Uh, but anyway, I was, I was very suspicious in my first meeting. And uh, I would like to tell you that at some point in the first three months, some individual or some single event or some group had a tremendous effect on me, but it just didn't happen that way. All I know is when I came here on the first night, I thought you were about the funniest bunch I had ever seen. And three months later, I wanted to be like you and I didn't know why. Now I drank once after I came to the program and when I came back, I went into that recovery and uh, I got a job. I got a job in a department store selling t-shirts and sweat socks, and it was about all I could handle. But one nice thing about being a department store clerk, if you are a newcomer to Alcoholics Anonymous, you do not take the problems of management home with you in the evening. Uh, you got plenty of time to go to meetings, and I went eight to ten times a week. Uh, for a while I went because you were my only source of fresh pastry. <laughs> when I was living in a recovery house and my car wasn't working, uh, nobody would give me a ride anywhere else. And uh, I, I went a lot because I, I developed a liking for you almost immediately. Not so much for your program, but for you personally. And that was very important to me. Um, as, uh, things went, as time went on, things began to get better for me, as they do for everybody. Now, I don't know whether this is true of anybody else, but I suspect it may be. During the time that I have been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, every single good thing that has happened to me has begun with a period of intense emotional pain. Uh, I'm a creature of habit, and even a bad habit, once broken, causes me some anxiety for the loss. And it's a little ri ridiculous, I suppose, but I'm stuck with it. For example, after I'd been in that department store for about a year, I really didn't care for that line of work. And a friend of mine on the program told me that the aerospace industry was hiring anybody who came out. <laughs> and uh, I got to thinking about it, and I developed a terrific conflict uh, internally. I, I, thought on the one hand, well, here I have a job I don't like, but I know I can do it, and I can have it for as long as I want. On the other hand, I'd like to do something different, uh, but if I go out there, maybe they won't like me, and they'll fire me, and then I'll have no job. And so I mulled this over briefly for about six months. <laughs> and when the pain of not doing it became too great, I went out, and I applied, and I got into the aerospace industry. And sure enough, they were hiring everybody. And I inadvertently found I had stumbled into a... Uh, a godsend because I had already been in the Navy so I knew how to look busy without doing anything <laughs> which is a tremendous help in any large corporation and particularly in those days when they had the cost plus six fee contracts I liked it so well I stayed there for seven years but in any event when I was about three years sober I began to undergo another uh, period of psychic pain because it occurred to me that I did not want to do what I was doing for a living for the rest of my life 
And in order to do something I really would like to do better, I would have to go back to school. Now, I talked it over with my family and my friends and everybody that would listen to me. I knew there would have to be some minor adjustments in my AA activities because I was going back to school at night. After a long period of time, when the pain became too great not to, I enrolled in school and went back. I had great misgivings about it. First off, I was afraid I would plunk out and everybody in my home group would laugh at me. I'm a member of the, uh, the celebrated Lenox Avenue Friday night participation group in Huntington Beach, California, by the way. And my home group, I think, is typical. I don't know why I thought they'd laugh at me because I might stub my toe. When you think about it logically, if right now you lost everything you've attained in the world materially, not one friend that you've developed in Alcoholics Anonymous would be lost to you because nobody here developed a friendship for you for what you've got. It's for what you are. And I don't know of any other group in the world that's like that. If I lost everything today, the only predictable emotion I would recognize in my home group the next time I went to it might be a little bit of envy because my story would be better the next time I spoke. <laughs> but I worried about failing. And I'd never been much of a scholar. I'd, I'd gone to college uh, during the Korean War. Uh, and uh, I'd gotten through the University of Illinois, but I, I did just enough to get by and nothing more. Uh, in any event, uh, when, it, when the pain became too great to stay where I was, I enrolled. And I made myself a promise that if school interfered with my AA activities, I would quit immediately and go right back to meetings every night. And that I would maintain my AA activities along with the schooling. And I think largely because of that promise, because I made it to myself, I didn't have to keep it. Uh, things went very well for me. I had never gone to school one day at a time before. Uh, and by this time, you had taught me to live that way. And so this time, I didn't worry about the end of the curriculum or the end of the year or whatever may follow. I just went in with today's lesson today. And much to the shock of my wife and my sponsor and my friends, four years later, I graduated and I did reasonably well. I had gone back to law school, and now I was faced with still another emotionally painful decision. Should I take the bar exam? Because if I took it and passed, I would probably want to go into practice, and I would starve. <laughs> On the other hand, I could keep this old job that I had, which I didn't care much for by this time, uh, but I knew I could handle it. Well, when the pain of not doing anything became too great, I took the bar exam, and much to the shock of my wife and my sponsor and my friends, I passed. And I went into practice, fully uh, prepared to starve, and it didn't happen that way. Things got very good. My finances uh, took a, uh, a significant uh, jump. Things went very well for me. And I found at that time something that I had not realized before, that any significant change in my lifestyle, whether it is catastrophic or absolutely terrific, creates exactly the same anxiety. And you have to get closer to the program when the anxieties begin to deepen on you. And uh, I found myself going to a lot of meetings and staying very close to the people that I had come to know and love in this program. And for uh, almost six years thereafter, I was a member of a reasonably prosperous law firm in uh, Orange County, California, until a series of disasters began to befall me, which resulted in my losing the right to practice law. They began in October of 1975. At that time, one of my partners became ill and had to withdraw from the practice. I thought it was uh, extremely uh, short-sighted of him to treat me this way. It never occurred to me that his diabetes and high blood pressure were not uh, caught for my benefit. Um, I was about to go on vacation when the poor guy came down with these problems. 
and my wife with that cold Al-Anon logic that occasionally pervades our homes suggested that if the problem were really as cataclysmic as I thought, it would still be here when we got back from vacation, so why don't we go and have a nice time anyway? And I've never been one to hit ladies, but I came close on that occasion. We went on vacation, we had one of the best times in our lives, came back, and on the day that I got back, with the accountants had told us we were going to have to dissolve the partnership as of December 1, 1975, for tax purposes, uh, I looked down on my desk and on the top of the incoming mail, there was a notice that the West Orange County Court was going to be uh, taking on a commissioner. In California, a trial commissioner does virtually the same things that a judge does, and they were taking applications. And this was the first time that I had been eligible to apply and did not have partnership responsibilities to keep me from it, so I applied. Uh, I'm one of those people who lost jobs because of my drinking, so when I fill out an application or a resume, I have to put that down, and I did. But I also put down the fact that you and I have been keeping company for a few years now, and some of the things that we've been doing together. And about a month after I applied, uh, the screening committee of judges of that court called in 20 of us out of the, I think it was 107 who had applied, and interviewed us. And my interview was very good. We talked about everything except Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, recovery and alcoholism. And I, I figured out why on the way back to the office that day. I figured they'd already decided to hire one of their buddies, and they didn't want to embarrass me by bringing this up. Not realizing that I have never been embarrassed by you or my association with you, and I'm proud of it and I tell people about it. But in any event, about a week later, I got another call to come back for another interview. And this time they talked about nothing but you and recovery and uh, the problems of alcoholism. And later that month, <clears throat> in December of 1975, I was notified that uh, I had received the appointment and that as of January, um, I could go to work as a trial commissioner. I later found out from the judges who had done the initial screening that they felt that the fact that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous was a significant advantage over some of the other applicants because of my knowledge of alcohol and drug problems, uh, which takes up about 70% of our caseload. So the next time you want to tell me about what a terrible stigma or handicap it is to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, write to me and I'll give you an address where uh, it can be sent. Uh, I've never found that to be true. In any event, I went to work. And I could have held that job happily for the rest of my life. I enjoyed it. I was doing mostly traffic cases there. But unfortunately, on my sponsor's 30th AA birthday, Governor Brown removed me from my job as a commissioner by appointing me to a regular judgeship in the North Orange County Municipal Court in Fullerton, California, where I've now been for two and a half years. Uh, that's the district that has Anaheim Stadium and Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm, and I feel right at home there. Uh, <laughs> my sponsor thinks it's outrageously funny that on his 30th birthday, one of his babies became one of the people he was most afraid of when he came to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> The judiciary is an interesting occupation. I recommend it highly to any recovered alcoholic. And I particularly enjoy seeing alcoholics in the course of my work. I see them every day. The alcoholics in my courtroom are a little difficult to distinguish because they come in looking like judges, lawyers, police officers, bailiffs, probation officers, civil litigants, and when they're finished, they leave. The social drinkers, on the other hand, are immediately uh, easy to spot. They all come up with Orange County Jail across their chest, and they're wearing handcuffs. And they are mortally offended if any of us suggest that they might have an alcoholic problem. Now, I think anybody visiting us from another planet who looked in there would immediately conclude 
that if you were to become an earthling, an alcoholic would be a highly desirable state, if only by comparison with those who haven't quite made it yet. A knowledge of alcoholism is very handy in any criminal calendar. Uh, I've had some experience along those lines. I tend to be a little firm with people who continue to drink, although I try to be supportive of those who have decided to, uh, to try to stop. Uh, I had a fellow in front of me once, uh, I looked down at his chart when he came in, he was in custody, and uh, the minute he, his case was called, he advised me that he would have to get out of jail on that particular day because he was going into a 12-step house we had there in Orange County, and they would only take people on that particular day. I've been a member of the board of that step house for a number of years. <laughs> We've never had a rule that we only take newcomers on Wednesdays. So that wasn't playing too well. Then he told me that he was en route to an AA meeting. Incidentally, he did not know that I belonged uh, to the program, as I later found out. Uh, and he was stopped because he had had two beers. I checked the police report and found out that he hadn't been stopped. He had been sleeping under some shrubbery, and they thought he was dead when they went over. <laughs> Finally, uh, I looked at his report, and I noticed that he'd been in there two weeks earlier, and the judge who had seen him at that time had given him 60 days in jail and suspended it on condition he not get arrested for six months. And then he hit me with a clincher, that he wanted to go back to Alcoholics Anonymous because he liked your philosophy of easy does it. <laughs> I told him I thought that was terrific, but he was going to have to do 60 days, first things first. <laughs> we managed to uh, have somebody meet him when he did his 60 days. We got him into that recovery house. Incidentally, it was not a Wednesday. And uh, last I heard, he was doing quite well. And I was very pleased by it. Uh, I don't know about you, but when the chips are down, when I tend to get depressed or anxious, I go to small discussion groups, and um, I keep a few in reserve. And there's one in Huntington Beach, California, that I go to with some regularity. It's got a good, hard core of sobriety and common sense in it. And a year or so ago, well, over a year ago, I went to it on a particular Tuesday night, and it was one of those meetings where the honesty was so strong you could almost tap dance on it at the end of the meeting. And when the meeting was uh, coming to an end, the group secretary got up and said he would sign court cards. And we said the Lord's Prayer. And after the meeting was over, uh, a well-dressed lady in her 60s came over to me and said, would you please sign my court card? And I said, I'd be happy to, but I am not the group secretary. And she said, no, sir, but you are the bastard who sentenced me here. <laughs> She said, I want you to remember me when I come back. <laughs> I did. <laughs> she brought us twice the number of meetings on that court card that we had ordered her to attend. She's now had two birthdays. She is a good friend, and I love her dearly. And after we became friends, I asked her why she gave us all those extra meetings. And she said, because I resented the hell out of having to come here. She said, I wouldn't have minded it if I had hated those people or if I had not believed anything they said, but she said from about the third or fourth meeting, I found myself looking forward to it. And I liked them. And uh, I liked everything about the program. And the more I liked them, the more I hated you. <laughs> and she said, the only way I knew of proving to you that you couldn't force me to come to these meetings was to bring back twice the number that you'd ordered me to attend. I really wish a lot more newcomers had that kind of resentment going for them in this program. Uh, she's a great gal. I've always liked to see newcomers in meetings. 
uh, I guess in part because of my occupation, newcomers and I are going to see something of each other, one way or the other. And I personally would much prefer it to be an Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to talk for just a moment about something that is essentially uncomfortable for me, but I think it needs to be said. I'm lucky. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous as an unemployed bum, and I have sort of gone through the ranks with you. And I have noticed there have been some changes in the way that my friends in Alcoholics Anonymous occasionally will react uh, to uh, situations that arise in AA. I have noticed uh, from my own standpoint, and I have seen it more obviously in California than anywhere else, that occasionally we will get someone into Alcoholics Anonymous who is prominent in the community, or indeed who has had a great deal of publicity, or who by his occupation may be in a, a significant position. And I think there is a well-meaning tendency to treat that person differently, if only slightly differently, than we would treat any other newcomer walking in that door. And if we do that, we may kill him. One of the reasons I sobered up is because you treated me exactly like everybody else. And one of the reasons I think other people sober up in here is because once you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, you are a recovering alcoholic and nothing else. And I know that the people who are prominent in the community are the first to say, please don't treat me like anything except a member of this fellowship. But I think it's important that we remember there are no classes of membership in Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, that we all have to be treated the same way. Because if we start being deferential to anybody, the price that they may pay is death or insanity. And that's too great to ask. And so uh, I make it a point of saying in the meetings that I go to, that if at the end of the meeting you call me by my first name and want to talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, I will be here until the lights go out. But if you call me judge or your honor or anything else that refers to my uh, occupation, I get nervous and I tend to spill my coffee in your lap. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm here not because of anything except the fact that, hey, I'm a drunk who can't stay sober without you. And you've changed my life and I'm grateful. And I need you more now than I needed you 17 and a half years ago when I had my last drink. And I think we all, all stand exactly in the same relationship. And I hope we don't forget it. Now, I have another job that uh, I do in the summertime that I had not intended to talk about very much here today because of the proximity of Wichita to Kansas City. For the last 14 years, I was one of the regular public address announcers for the California Angels in the summertime. <laughs> and I uh, fill in occasionally for the Dodgers and, uh, and the Rams. This year I've just done spot work, but I'm still staying with it, and I'm going back home now because I uh, expect to be occupied in part during the playoffs. Um, when I started with the Angels in 1965, they were still playing in Los Angeles, and I told the people there that I was a member of AA in the front office, and their reaction I think was predictable. They said, so what? Uh, does that mean you won't be here? I think I'm the only part-time employee they've ever had who's never missed a day's work. Uh, later, of course, I, I was no longer lonely in the press box. I, by the time I uh, left my regular duties there and just began to work uh, on a spot basis, we had three sports writers, half a dozen other support personnel, uh, the scoreboard operator's two brothers, and the scoreboard operator wasn't looking too good. And I wouldn't have missed that for anything. I like to see drunks wherever I run across them, in press boxes or in courtrooms or anyplace else. Uh, and I really wish that I had film of the way that one of the sports writers, who has well over 10 years, 
when he and I uh, eat dinner together in Dodger Stadium, I wish I had film of the way we're treated because uh, it's something to behold. As you know, press boxes in, uh, in the ballparks have uh, restaurants behind them and everything is free and they have a bar and everything is free there. And when this friend of mine and I have dinner in Dodger Stadium, uh, I get better service than I've had anywhere in the world in a restaurant. And uh, I get better service than the owner of the Dodgers for good reason. The owner of the Dodgers does not belong to Alcoholics Anonymous, but the press box waiter does. <laughs> And we take care of our own. <laughs> and when the sports writer and I have dinner there, we talk about the meetings we've been to and the speakers we've heard and what our home groups are doing. And we talk about it a little louder than we really have to. <laughs> With the possible exception of a drunk tank, I've never found any place that's uh, got any more newcomers to the acre than a, than a press box has. And sooner or later, we are going to take over in there. Uh, it's only a matter of time. But I wouldn't trade those guys, the waiter and the, uh, the sports writer and those other people for all of the corporation presidents and brain surgeons that I used to drink with. I drank in the same sleazy bars you did, but I never drank with ordinary people. <laughs> I couldn't find any. <laughs> if I went into a place that did not have a uh, CPA for the evening, I might become one just to help them out a little bit. <laughs> I worked in New Orleans at one time, but Betty, you are really in for it. Uh, I think I got to Alcoholics Anonymous about three years early just by transferring my license plate there, but uh, I worked in New Orleans one time and I used to drink in a little bar uh, where they had um, my entire philosophy of life on the back wall. Four words, get drunk, be somebody. <laughs> and I desperately wanted to. Uh, I'm not gonna talk for much longer. I promised that I would quit on time. I, I scared Rich a little bit, our leader here. I, I told him about a story that we tell in California. I don't know whether it's true or not, about uh, one of those meetings we had where we had two speakers instead of one, and they were both given a certain amount of time to fill. And uh, the first speaker got carried away. And when his time was up and he didn't finish, the speaker, uh, the leader of the meeting just reached over and tugged him on the coat, and the guy just went right on talking, you know. And after five more minutes, he reached up and he grabbed him by the tie and tugged him. And the guy just brushed him off and went right on talking. Well, the leader got so mad, he picked up his gavel and threw it at him. And he missed him and hit a, uh, an old-timer in the front row right between the eyes. And the old-timer, as he was sliding out of the seat, was heard to whisper, uh, hit me again, I can still hear it. <laughs> For those of you who have taken the appreciable risk of sitting in the front seat, I do not intend to make you targets here. You know, I spoke earlier about how I felt about coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I felt terrible about it, the way everybody else does, I think, on your first visit. But I don't think anybody has ever described that better than a guy from uh, Norm's home area. He came down to speak at one of my early meetings, and he had the best uh, description of how my kind of newcomer felt about coming to AA that I've ever heard, and it was in the form of a letter. It was an advice to the love lord thing, and I got a copy of it later. And I'll pass it on to those of you who may be new or relatively new. It began, Dear Abigail Van Buren, I have a, a brother who has been executed for murder, and another who is doing life for rape, and a third who is a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My mother sells dope to high school kids, and my father makes bathtub gin. Recently, I fell in love with a girl who has been sentenced to the state prison for smothering her illegitimate child, and I want to marry her. My question is, should I tell her about my brother who's on AA?
<laughs> and that's just about the way I felt about you when I came in. Isn't it remarkable how our attitudes change over the years? I tell people now that I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for a number of reasons. One of which is, it's a remarkably good source of newcomers. As much as we are doing to put the word out about alcoholism and recovery, I still find that there are people that I may have worked with five or 10 or 15 years ago, or have known socially or in some other context who will discover an alcoholism problem uh, in their family or with their friends or with their coworkers or sometimes in their own lives, and I may be the only guy they know who's ever dealt with it. And so I get an occasional call that way and I'm pleased to get them. Another reason I tell people is I don't have to make up those funny stories when I go to cocktail parties about why I'm not drinking. I've never been offered a drink by anybody who knew I was an alcoholic. And uh, I suspect, I've seen one or two guys who were coming in here new who were a little shy about breaking their anonymity, and I suspect it might have been for that reason. But in any event, uh, it's, it's much easier just to tell people I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have to make up stories at these parties when they have the punch bowl off to the side, like, you know, I'm uh, having stomach trouble or I'm thinking about becoming a Mormon or one of those things. <laughs> and the most important reason I tell people is because I am proud of you and proud to be a part of your program and pleased with what has happened to me since I've been here. And I would like to take just a few minutes here at the end to talk a little bit about some of the opinions I have formed since I have been here. And I pass these along free of charge for whatever use they may be, uh, and subject to the notice that I may change all of my opinions on 24 hours notice uh, as I learn more about this program. But I am absolutely convinced that Alcoholics Anonymous is the biggest con game I've ever seen. Uh, I came in here believing that you were going to deal with my drinking problem, not realizing that my drinking was a symptom of my real problem, which was living. And that's the one thing that you are uniquely qualified to deal with, people who cannot live successfully out there. Now, I was a little disappointed because I came to AA and drank once and came back. Uh, otherwise, I would have had something over 18 years by now. And uh, when I came back to the program, I was undergoing uh, some unpleasant physical sensations uh, that are known to us all. And I had a copy of the big book. And I went through that book wondering how you get over the shakes. And I found that in the basic text of our fellowship, there isn't a single word on physical sobriety. If there had been a consumer advocate at that time, I might have turned you in. Because I thought the book had been sold to me under false pretenses. Not a word in there about how to get physically sober. The entire book deals with how to stay sober by dealing with the obsession once physical sobriety has been obtained. Uh, another thing about uh, the fifth chapter that I think is a little bit misleading is that bit about some of us have underlying emotional disorders. I have been waiting desperately for 17 and a half years for some guy to walk in and say, I am a normal, well-adjusted, happy newcomer who is just drinking himself to death, and I would like some help. Everybody I've talked to so far and every story I've heard seems to come from one of those people with underlying emotional disorders, and I certainly had mine. And I think it's a gentle way of letting us into the fact that this problem is at once more deep and yet more soluble than any of us suspected when we came here. And I am amazed at the fact that uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is as clear and as simple, although not easy, but as simple as we find it to be. I thought it was so deceptively simple when I read the steps that there must be something you had left out. 
Did you have the feeling when you were new that if you could really turn it on for about 90 days and convince the old-timers that you were sincere, that some night after the meeting was over, they'd take you back in the back room and add that one additional step that would make it all fall into place? And I was a little bit disappointed on my first birthday to realize that the old-timers were doing it the same way I was. You know, right out of the book, it's there. And of course, I found too that Alcoholics Anonymous deals with attitudes. That basically what this program is designed to do is to give you and I a certain simple attitude described in chapters two and three of the big book that will enable us to live comfortably on the outside. In essence, there is a source of power in this program that I had no idea was here. And it is more vast and, uh, and obviously more awesome than anything I've ever encountered. If you want to get just a glimpse of it, let me suggest this. Talk to the best psychiatrist you can find about compulsive behavior patterns and ask him what kind of luck he's having in dealing with people with those patterns. If he is really top drawer, he may be helping 3%. For the last 45 years, Alcoholics Anonymous has been helping 75% of the compulsive behavior patterns that walk in that door and every other door like it, the, the compulsive behavior pattern being manifested in alcoholism. That's raw power. You may put any label on it you want, but it's there. And it comes into being the minute I begin to work these 12 deceptively simple steps. I noticed at first when it, for the first time in my life, it was no longer necessary for me to drink after I came here. And then as I began to work it and I began to read the program, it became apparent to me that I'm not entitled to practice these principles only on that immediate drinking problem. I'm required to practice these principles in all of my affairs. So that same source of power, which has enabled me to live comfortably without alcohol for 17 and a half years, is available in any area of my life where I am willing to use it. It's there to make me a better member of my community, a better member of my family, a better member of my profession. I can use it anywhere I wish by simply applying these principles one day at a time. And that's a lot more intoxicating than anything I ever get out of a bottle. I am absolutely convinced that you and I can go anywhere we want to go, we can do anything we want to do, and become any kind of people we want to become. If we will first and foremost apply the conditions of this program to our lives one day at a time, and then make the sacrifices necessary to get what we want, God will give us every single thing we are capable of handling, provided nothing becomes more important to us than being sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's more intoxicating than anything I ever get out of a bottle. And so if you be new or relatively new, and you're worried about coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, be assured that those of us who are here now as recovering alcoholics did not come here in order to die sober. We came here to learn to live that way. I didn't come here in order to go into some kind of a spiritual leisure world. I came here because I wanted a bigger slice of life out there. And I never in my life went first class until I met you. And I've never gone second class since. Every successful person I have ever known has been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, in the true sense of success. We learn early on that success and prosperity have nothing to do with a horsepower of your car the size of your wallet. There's great truth in that old joke that if you want to see what God thinks of money, look at the people he gives it to. But by the same token, <laughs> if you define success as we do, as being the ability to live comfortably with yourself, the success rate in Alcoholics Anonymous is staggering. There are people who are working this program so well that I feel better the minute they walk in the room, even if we don't have a chance to talk. Norm, whom you heard Friday night, is a good example of that. There are people in this program 
who have learned to, to control that inner emotional core to such a degree that they have achieved the serenity the book talks about. And you know, if you and I can control our emotional reactions to the world, it doesn't matter what happens out there. We can never again be hurt. We can love freely and fully and openly without being vulnerable to anything. We can go from the position of being our own worst enemy to our own best friend. And that's more intoxicating than anything I ever get out of a bottle. And I'm grateful to you for it. I am aware this morning that if there's any part of my life that's unhappy or unsatisfying or unfulfilling, you have already given me the tools to change it, if I will use them the way you have taught me to. And so never again do I have to settle for second best. Never again do I have to be unhappy or unfulfilled, but never again can I blame anybody else for it, because I know, too, that I already have what's necessary to change it. You've given me that. Perhaps most importantly, you have given me of your lives during the 17 and a half years that I have been sober. There is a certain basic excitement to being around drunks that I have never found with anybody else in the world. At first, I just thought you were weird. <laughs> Later, as I got to know you, I realized that the source of this excitement is your ability to live in the present, one day at a time. Everybody lives in the present, but we're the only ones who enjoy it. Uh, it amazes me, you know, that in Alcoholics Anonymous, there are so many young people of all ages. <laughs> if you define young as being uh, those people whose aspirations are more important than their memories, I can't find any oldsters in here. And if you can find people who are excited about living now, uh, that's Alcoholics Anonymous. We are people who are neither shackled by the past nor terrified of the future, who are aware that all we have is today, but that God has already given us everything we need today in order to be happy right up until bedtime tonight if we choose to. And that's more intoxicating than anything I ever get out of a bottle. And in the last analysis, I guess that uh, the thing that keeps bringing me back to you again and again and again is the love and the understanding that these drunks have for each other. It's fully as addictive as anything that ever brought me here in the first place. It's an amazing thing for a loner, and we've all been loners, with all those defense mechanisms built, and they're always built when we come in here, to find out sometime in those first months or years that for the first time in your life, you're with people who love you openly, freely, and without reservation. And you cannot absorb that love day after day after day without coming to the point in your own life where no matter how self-centered you've been, you suddenly realize you can look at a bunch of drunks and honestly say to them, I love you, and you too. And I guess in the last analysis, uh, I enjoy being with you because I am absolutely convinced that when you come into Alcoholics Anonymous, regardless of your age or circumstance or condition, you can absolutely rely on one fact. The best day of our lives has not yet been lived, and every day we stay sober, it gets closer. Thank you. Thank you, Phil. You know, when Barney asked me to come down and chair this meeting, uh, I thought it really bothered me. But really, it's been a privilege to stand up here and look at all you beautiful people. And I can feel the love out there. And this conference has been a labor of love. And the man who made it possible is sitting right here, Barney.
I didn't make this possible. This would have been a hell of a conference if the only one showed up was the speaker's McMitty, wouldn't it? <laughs> but you people have made this. And a lot of other people. I'm going to be try to be very brief. There is a couple in the audience that I would like to stand that probably come the longest distance to attend this conference, and I've got to visit with him short. But John, you and your lovely wife stand up there from Australia. And I don't want to take your credit for this conference. There was a lot of people that put in a lot of time and effort in this. And really, as I think back, I, maybe I had very little to do with it. Now, they tell me in the past that you shouldn't mention names when you're thanking the people. And there's a lot of people that did a lot of work that I couldn't think of all of them mentioning their names. But there are three or four that I am going to, and uh, maybe not in the order that their work, but there is. And the first thing I'd like for you to meet is my lovely wife, Doris. And it was her patience to put up on the I told her Friday, she said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, from Friday noon till Sunday noon, my time belongs to the Kansas State uh, Conference. And there were three other people that's been a tremendous help. You've heard Marty's name mentioned. And there's also a couple of guys, uh, Don and Frank, will you stand up? That's been tremendous. And I couldn't have, we couldn't have had it without them three people. And I certainly want to thank the speakers for coming, Bill and his wife and the rest of you, for being here and for making this weekend possible for us. We had about 1,975. That's an unofficial count, you know, like they do in the votes. We kind of run them over fast this morning, registered for this conference. It has been a, a pleasure for me and... Uh, each and every one of you out here has helped my sobriety to do that, and each and every one of you here has been uh, a part of my sobriety. This is the time of the year I get to see a lot of people that back early played a big part in my sobriety. And a good friend asked me, and they said no announcements, but I will say Chuck and Elsa C. will be in Topeka on October the 21st at the Civic Center for their AA banquet. I did ask Bill, you know, if we get off on that. This has been a lovely conference to me. I've had a lot to do in different capacities with a lovely conference. And I think as far as I'm concerned, personally, this one went the best of any. And as far as I'm concerned, it's the greatest, not particularly because I was a chairman, because you people made it that way. And I guess as I can say, just thank you and God love all of you for being here. And I hope we see you all here next year. So let's stand and join hands if you care to and close this conference with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation but deliver us from evil 
To those of you who are wondering uh, which ones are the members of AA, I got a solution for that. The ones who have the peaceful, contented look on their faces, they're the members of Alcoholics Anonymous. The rest of you have got something wrong with you. I'm glad I know what it is with me. In addition to being an alcoholic, I'm a mental case, too. When I was drinking, uh, I used to like women. I still like them. That kind of worried me. I asked Al Badger about it, and he said he, looked, he made research for me. He looked all through the 12 steps, and the wasn't anything said about women or watermelon, so I could just go ahead and have my fill. We don't take any sides, courts, in the controversial wet and dry subject. I was surprised to learn that this county was dry. Doggone, I, I wish my friend from Atchison, Kansas, could be with me and see this crowd in a dry Texas county. Our feelings are best expressed uh, by the story of the Irishman who was listening to the temperance lecture, who was waving his arms on a soapbox on the corner and saying, if you drink whiskey, you'll die, young man. You'll go to an early grave. And the Irish went back in the crowd and looked up at him and he said, you will, will you? Well, I'll tell you something. Every morning before breakfast, my father drank a pint of whiskey. Every noon before lunch, he drank another pint of whiskey. Every night before dinner, he drank another pint of whiskey. And he lived to be 99 years old, and four days after he was dead, he looked better than you do right now. They tell a story up there in Iowa about a salesman traveling on the road. Checked out of a little Iowa hotel, two-story affair, and left his umbrella in the room. He didn't know that as he checked out of that room, a young married couple on their honeymoon checked in to the same room. He got out of the road five miles and discovered the loss of his umbrella and said, well, tonight he'd go back, so he did. Clerk wasn't there, and he just, he had a few gurgles, so he, he jumped two steps at a time upstairs. Just about to go into the door of the room, and he heard a man's voice on the inside say, Whose cute little baby blue eyes are those? He heard a girl's voice say, They're yours, honey, all yours. He heard the man's voice say, Whose cute little pug nose is that? And he heard the girl's voice inside say, It's yours, honey, all yours. And he heard the man's voice say, Whose cute little rosy red lips are those? And the girl's voice said, They're yours, honey, all yours. And the drunk outside said, when you come to that umbrella, that's mine. <laughs> they tell a story about a fellow who went to a new town, and he wanted to succeed very badly. So one of his friends said, well, you must join a club. Everybody here belongs to clubs, so you better get in a club. So this night, the fellow was trotting along the street, and he, he saw what he saw, thought it was a club on a second story. Second floor, he walked up, 
and it happened to be the night for Columbus. And he only said, I'd like to join this club. I'm a new man in town. And the secretary said, are you Catholic? No, the fellow said. Well, the secretary said, you've got to be a Catholic if you're going to join this club. Well, the guy didn't like that very well, so he went back down on the street. And he thought, well, I'll, I'll try another club. And this time I'll tell him I'm a Catholic ahead of time. So he saw one another window. He happened to get into the Masonic Lodge there and... He walked upstairs and he said, I'd like to join this club. I'm a good Catholic. I go to Mass every morning. Why, the secretary says, you can't join this club if you're a Catholic. And the guy says, well, I'm a dirty son of a... Oh, he says, you want the A&E club. That's down there. And he says, Rabbits. 
They drank quite a long while and got along pretty well until they met some cats in the same neighborhood. One of the rabbit's name was Foot. The other rabbit's name was Foot Foot. And the third rabbit's name was Foot Foot Foot. So they were drinking one day there down in the meadow and Foot Foot says to Foot Foot Foot. He says, Foot Foot Foot, you know, I think Foot is drinking too much. And Foot 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 says, why don't you mind your own business? And Foot Foot says, well, come to I think we're all three drinking quite a bit. And Foot 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 says, well, let's talk about something else. Well, everything went along fine until Foot died. And they were having the funeral. And Foot Foot and Foot 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 were at the funeral. They were sitting there with their heads in their paws, having had a bad night the night before. And Foot 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 says, I remember Foot Foot. It wasn't long ago when you and I were talking about our drinking problem. And, and Foot 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 says, I think Foot Foot that we should do something about it now. And Foot Foot says, What Foot Foot makes Foot makes you think that? And Foot 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 says, Well, with one foot in the grave, it's time we join the A. I can't let the doctor go here, alcoholic doctor. <clears throat> Fellow's gonna have baby and his wife. And he uh, she told him it's time. He went to the phone to call the doctor. And the doctor was on vacation. So she said, well, just get any doctor then. So the guy got an eye, ear, nose, and throat man who happened to be an alcoholic to come. Paul, the alcoholic doctor, eye, ear, nose, and throat man came. He had the little black bag. He went into the room, came rushing out, and said to the father, go get some hot water. And the father ran and got the hot water. Doctor took it back in. The doctor came out and said, go get a hammer. And the fellow said, a hammer? Yes, the doctor said, get it quick. It's an emergency. The guy ran and got the hammer, gave it to him. The doctor ran back in. The doctor came out and said, get a chisel. The guy said, a chisel? Yes, the doctor said, get it. It's an emergency. So he ran and got a chisel, took it back in. The doctor did. Finally, the doctor came back out and said, I've got to have a big pair of pliers. And the fellow said, Dr. Pliers, what are you doing to my wife? And the alcoholic doctor said, your wife, hell, I can't get that damn black bag open. <laughs> I don't know how many of you uh, are football fans. If you'd have been to the Notre Dame... Southern California game of 10 years ago. There were 52,000 people there. At the halftime, a drunk down on the field got the microphone away from the guy who was announcing the play to the crowd. And he asked everybody in the stand to stand up and sing Sweet Adeline. And just then, three great big burly policemen came and and very roughly took that drunk off the field. I was one of that four.
I wasn't very anonymous about my drinking. 62,000 people there. When my sponsor called on me, I said, uh, where will we meet? They didn't want anybody to see me. <laughs> me, who they drug out of the field in front of 52,000 people. Now, I don't want nobody to know. Well, I guess we're all the same. I'm going to tell you something about me, very briefly, with the hope that there's some new man here who might get the idea that he drank like I did. And that if that guy can stay sober, that I can too. I wasn't a very fancy drinker. I was a rum flip drinker. You know, rum flips are made with sugar, eggs, and rum. Sugar to give you strength, eggs to give you energy, and rum to give you ideas what to do with that strength and energy. point to me and say that that big white lawyer up there at the bar. He's been there too. I, uh, my parents, neither one of them drank. I was born with good religious parents, had good religious grade school education. I, my grandparents, neither one drank. My sister had the same environment as I. She didn't drink. I uh, went to Drake University and took my law. Won a postgraduate to Yale. Went down and took that in the law. Voted the man most likely to succeed. years, I was a bum. I mooched drinks on the corner of Hollywood and Vine, jail all over the country, always to get free drinks. Used to tell Mama that I got a lot of good law business out of my drinking, that I had to make contacts by getting drunk once in a while. Joined the country club. Because I told Mama that would certainly get me, make a big corporation lawyer out of me. <laughs> country club kind of hinted that they wished I'd leave. So I took the hint and resigned. The elk. I've been an elk for 22 years. They bought some new Davenport at our club. Beautiful. I wanted to lay down on when I was drunk. They were narrow-minded. They said, we haven't any sleeping quarters. I said, I'll make some. So they kind of hinted around that they wished I'd quit. So I resigned from the elk. Getting along fine. My office, little law office, got to be the place where on Saturday, Saturday night we 
go and start to get drunk before the dance. And then I heard about the 40-hour week. And I didn't see why a lawyer should have to work on Saturday. So I told Mama to help with it. We're going to close the office up on Friday. I'll move my weekend up to Friday night. We start drinking Friday night. Then out to the club all day Saturday. And I got down to where I was playing three holes of golf. And then I'd say, I, I got a pain in my back. I got to go back to the clubhouse. Lend me your opener and get drunk. Carried over Sunday, quit going to church. With you, shake their head and go to work. All right. But as the years rolled on and that pattern continued, I, I soon discovered I was taking a drink on Monday. And that was quite a shock. I knew something was wrong and I didn't know what. And then every morning, and then at 11 o'clock, taking a drink. And then one with one, two o'clock a drink. And always drunk every weekend. I close friends would say, why don't you quit drinking? I'd say, why don't you? Mama says to me, you better quit drinking. I'd say, why don't you quit smoking? Because I knew she couldn't do that. Why don't you quit playing bridge, I said. Cut out coffee. That would be the end of that. All the time, my wife and my, my sister and my mother had a saying Novena after Novena that I quit. And it just got worse. Then I was elected into the office of DA in my county. Brother, that, that's a great opportunity for an alcoholic. Because you're dealing with bootleggers. And you're handling the evidence, too. You know, you have to go home and study the case a little tonight. Put a little bit of exhibit A in the briefcase. Take it home. Boy, I used to give that exhibit A hell, I'll tell you that. <laughs> well, everything went fine, I thought. Everybody in town was talking about my drunkenness, but I thought nobody knew nothing about it. Until one day it happened. I was put in my own jail with men that I with men that I just prosecuted. Now I don't I don't recommend that as a good way to establish quick friends. Here I was giving them hell in the afternoon. That night the same door opened up for me to go in there with them. Well, you'd think that'd be enough to shame me into quitting drinking. Oh, I had plenty of shame. I, every time I'd be real sick, thinking I'm going to die, I wasn't so afraid of death as I was the shame of dying drunk. Not so much what it would mean to me because I'd be dead, but the shame it would bring on my kid, whom I love very much. He's now 10. The Yankee, we call it. He said to me, after I was in there a while. You don't take that medicine anymore, do you, Daddy? And that was it for me. That payoff enough for any little nights that I've lost sleep helping another guy. He'll be at the airport to meet me tomorrow. And he hugs me tighter since I quit drinking. And so does Mama. 
my way. Let's pay off enough. Well, I didn't know what was to become of me. I prayed, and sometimes I think it was a sacrilege to pray in the condition I was in and the places I have been. My prayers were pretty phony, like the rest of me. I might well have said to God, God, help me get over this one, and if you do, I'll get over the next one by myself. I might well have added that. Well, AA introduced me again to God, and for that, I shall be eternally grateful. Into my little office one day, walks a guy who I once prosecuted when I was in the DA's office. And I inadvertently, instead of putting him in jail, I, I asked the court to put him in the hospital because I told the court, this guy's been in jail 78 times in the last year. And I've come to the conclusion that jail isn't helping him quit drinking. So let's try the hospital. And he never forgot. So he was in a, a week in Omaha. And he got on the train at his own expensive parts and came to see me. We didn't have any AA in Iowa then. And he called me. It was a Saturday afternoon. I went down to the office thinking it would be a, a big $10 case. And here's this guy who I knew as, as the prize comedian, the booze comedian of my town, who walked in and bear in mind he's only a week dry. And he looked good. And I envied his serenity. And he said, well, you don't remember me, but you prosecuted me once, and I'm an AA, and, and you could use some AA. Why, I said, Bud, you, you're here too late. I quit drinking. Didn't you hear about it? No, I said, I didn't hear about it. Why, well, I said, I haven't had a drink in 10 weeks. And I haven't. I last only eight days long. And this is the carryover from that. I promised Mama I wouldn't drink again. He said, if you haven't had a drink in 10 weeks, you'll be drunk in two weeks because you always get drunk every three months. And you know, that was just the way I was planning it. I knew that he knew what he's talking about. He knew me. But I said, no, no, there's no organization that has the word alcohol in its name. Just take it easy now. Don't rush me into this. Me who's been drinking for 20 years. Well, he said, will you please read the book? And he gave me the big book, and to get rid of him, I said I would. And I took it home, and this was one of those Saturday nights that Mom and I had lots of. Because my drinking folks quit asking us to go anyplace. And we'd sit home and play cribbage. Mama never kicked TV Pickle of death as long as I was sober. And this was one of those Saturday nights. We'd read the paper the next day of all of our friends having a dinner party. But we weren't invited. And we knew why, on account of me. Oh, we went home and Mama got the cribbage table out and I said, I don't want to play tonight. I want to read. And I started in. And I couldn't lay it down. I finished the next morning about 6 o'clock. Sat up all night. And I got on the long distance phone and I called my sponsor back and I said, come on back to the morning, will you please? And I started to think now what would have happened had he not got that call, and had I had time to cool down. But he got it. 
and I can see how my lost prayers begin paying off. He got on the train and came back again. And he said, when do we have the first meeting? And I said, we've got to get some more drunk. That's the first time I called me a drunk. I kind of thought I was a different kind of a drunk, kind of a high phone drunk. Kind of a second class Darrow, only better looking. You know. I thought drunks were bums. You <laughs> mooch drink. Now complaining about bums. Well, he got on the phone and I got on the phone. And the next day we had five in my little office. Two of them drunk at the time. I'll have the greatest thing in the of all of One fellow got up and made a long talk. And the text of it was what a son of a bitch's mother-in-law was. <laughs> Because her mother in laws were right in that same category at that time. Truth, in fact, my mother in law is a very lovely lady. Screwed up thinking. Fine. But here's another payoff on the prayer. If anybody's got any explanation for it other than my mom's prayers, let him stand up and tell me what it is. Four of that five are still sober and still in AA. There's now 4,000 in my state, in 81 cities and towns. There's no other explanation, no natural law explanation for that. That's not the work of any man or group of men. That's the work of Almighty God, that's all. That's all it is. Well, next meeting, out to my house, I pray nobody'd come. I said, if you come, we'll have dinner, and I'll make spaghetti and meatballs. And what do you know, all five came and they brought three more. Now we're eight. So we had another meeting. All eight came, nobody had a drink. They brought five more. Now we're 13. Had another meeting. All 13 came. Nobody had a drink. Brought 10 new ones. Now we're 23. We moved downtown to a basement of a restaurant to have our meeting. And then it happened. Some call him a slip. Some call him a nosedive. Some call him a relapse. Kenley calls him whiskey. <laughs> we sat with him, all of us, for four nights and four days. I locked up my law office. This thing that we thought was in utopia wasn't infallible. Oh, our tin fell. We thought you could lie throw away to jail, do away with the insane hospitals. Every drunk in the world will certainly someday age. And here was one of our boys, Hawkeye. And we all knew that in certain rotations, like yeast, we'd each line up and follow that pattern. And we debated whether or not to tell our wives. 
It takes a long time to get hurt. And I told Mama about it. That this guy got trouble. And boy, he explained like she never explained before. Why, she said you might expect that. You can't expect it. It would be 100% certain. He said you've got to expect it. And you'll get something out of the fact that he did this. Ah, uh, but that worried him. It worried Mama, too. They didn't know, and neither did we, which one of us would be next. But then you know what it was that kept us from going that way? It was the fact that we had promised another guy, a new man, that this was it. That you didn't have to slip. That you could stay sober. And if you get down on your knees, you get back on your feet. And had it not been for that promise that we'd made to the new men, I'm quite certain that in certain rotations, all of us would have followed the example of the man of distinction who switched to Calvary. We'd all lined up because that was the easiest thing to do. But we were now duty bound by honor, and I think alcoholics have honor. Now I'm talking about plain old drugs, like we have in AA. Of course, our fraternity is like all the rest. We sometimes have uh, three or four different kinds of AA. We have uh, that fellow who, after he's dry a little while, uh, he gets kind of distinguished. And he, uh, he says, uh, I wish that they wouldn't bring in some fun. I wish that uh, they'd make every fellow wear a white shirt that comes to the meeting and shave. He uh, gets awful dignified. He, uh, he begins to whisper about one of the married men who's establishing a little too close to rapport with that new babe that came in the club. He feels sorry for the married man's wife. The same thing of a guy who, uh, who says uh, in the club, in the tradition, he says we don't need money. Let's do away with the, the money part, but don't have any collections. And why don't we have more turkey sandwiches? <laughs> he goes home to the wife and um, he tells her that he wants to kiss the genuflect and he can in the door. Because now Daddy isn't drinking anymore. And he's a great martyr. And the paragon of all virtues, he don't swear now. He thinks anybody is a bugger that plays poker. And I don't play poker. But this guy thinks that anybody who plays any kind of card is certainly a devil. He, uh, he soon decides that the little woman looks a lot uh, older than he does. And she hasn't got his cup. So uh, he gets another little woman. The guy who was complaining about the Red Riding Hood romance in AA. The paragon of all virtues. The guy who now measures all morals by his idea of what's right are wrong. And he generally is a guy who's broken every law in the book 
and every moral law himself. But now that he's died three months, he's an officer of the wings will be coming pretty short. Well, we don't have very many of those in any way. Most all of us men and women are like wine. They improve with age. They get calmer and mellower and more serene. And they change their prayer from a petition to an act of gratitude. Thanking you for, for what you have. I don't like to speak about my family. But I had the yank on my radio show yesterday noon because it was the last day of school and I wanted a kid to hang around there. And without any rehearsal, I said to the yank, Son, what would you want if you could have anything in the world given to you right now? What would you want? And he said, Daddy, I'd want things to stay just exactly the way they are. And I like that because that's the way Mama feels and that's the way I feel. I know that they can't. I know that with old age, a lot of people dread seeing it coming, but I think in AA we don't. We have a great happiness, a great wonderful old age ahead of us. With the years becoming more serene, you know? The Lord has a funny way of doing things as each one of our lives certainly proves. Did you ever notice that when in a family a loved one is taken away, but then, quite by coincidence or accident, there's some grandchildren who absorb the love of the surviving spouse. And the love that we give to the grandchildren, I think, in my humble opinion, is even in even greater measure than you would have given to the deceased member of the family had he been alive. And we see it in AA with every split. We then have a knock on the door, and it's a new guy wanting to come in. A guy who's even willing to say a prayer to stay sober. A guy who we can put our arm around and say, Tom, you can make it. Yeah, that's like birds of the Lord said. To those who know God, no explanation is necessary. To those who don't know God, no explanation is possible. I'm just talking to people tonight who do know God. I don't think we need make any apology for the fact that we ask God for help every day. You know, a lot of great guys, a lot of strong guys, who when in dream of trouble like we were, ask their God for help and got it. And I'm thinking of Lissot's beautiful painting of Washington on his knees at Valley Forge. He was in trouble. He was praying to his God as he understood him. And then you think of what Lincoln said in the Civil War, with God's assistance we cannot fail. I think what Roosevelt said in the Declaration of War in Japan, where he closed that statement, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. I think of what MacArthur said when they went to get on the Philippines, when he gave a public statement to the press, wherein he said, People of the Philippines, we are here. By the grace of Almighty God, we begin landed on your soil. Let the indomitable spirit of the Khan and Frank Dorley on. 
as the lines of battle move forward and carry their homes within the zones of operations, rise and strike. For your homes and hearts, fight. In the name of your sacred dead, strike. Let no heart be faint. Let every arm be sealed. The guidance of divine God leads the way. Follow in his name for the holy grail of righteous victory. Who am I to challenge that? Who am I to say there's no God? I've never seen a fellow who didn't believe in God. Oh, I've seen smart alecks who, who get up and say, I'm an agnostic. But they might well have said, I'm an agnostic, thank God. I've never seen a guy, I'm some claim I would. So I could say to him, my friend, I'd like to take you to the meadow in the spring where you could see the poppies growing. And I'd like to take you to the rim of the Grand Canyon at sunset where you'd see the harmony of color. And I'd like to take you to Catalina Island where you'd see the moonlight and see the harmony of the beautiful rays of the moon. And I'd like to take you to an AA meeting, my friend, where you'd see God. Everybody believes in God. Certainly, in our humbling, feeble fashion, we argue, sometimes I think, by near to hypnosis to a new man, the fact that prayers pay off, my friends. And if we can ever change his way of thinking to the way of thinking where he's willing to say even a prayer, then he don't drink again. And bear in mind that in AA we capitalize on the failures that we've had. Many have done that before us. Edison, they say, had 20,000 failures before he succeeded in the incandescent lamp and then had a wonderful victory. Remember, the earth doesn't produce fruit until the earth has had a harrowing, harrowing experience. We of AA have had that experience and have twisted it by magic with the help of Almighty God into the greatest happiness that God can give to man. So life, surrender, happiness and joy and peace of mind. We learn the hard way that by giving we get. That by giving of ourselves and what I call alley charity, where you when you give some guy something and expect not to get it back or expect even to be found out that you gave it to him. You know, we want to do a lot of lip service charity. I wonder how many of us could stand up if we could ask you to, how many of you last week bought a room for a guy who didn't have a room? Or how many of you took a guy home who was having trouble? Oh, I know you might well say we don't want any drunks around the house. Who are we to say that who's been around the house for the past? 20 years or so. In AA, we learned that by doing, by taking activating motion, by practicing what we preach, by being our brother's keeper, whether we like it or not, that then we're compensated for that by a great happiness and reward. We're not like the girl described in the book as either who was surrounded on the north, south, east, and west by Edith. We can't stay sober that way in AA. We've got to get away from self and get into the, into the atmosphere of helping other people. I want to remember one experiment that I made during my drinking times that I wanted to make 
truly in the interest of science. Mama never let me have any liquor around the house, and when I did have it, she'd go home, and I didn't like that, because then there was nobody there to file furniture take care of the house. So one time I told her that I might fix them, had to have some so much alcohol a day. And one of the speakers this afternoon said that he had a physical craving for alcohol. We put that on the furnace up in Iowa, I might think. No such thing, I don't think. But I told Mama there was that my system had to have so much a day and, and if she'd consent to let me drink just a little bit at home every day, that that would be sufficient. So she said, all right. She knew enough about drinking it that that experiment shouldn't be with whiskey or gin that I liked. But she knew the creamy mint was something that was drank in really big glass. So she said, all right, we'll do that. We'll try it. We'll cream the mint. And boy, I thought, here, I've scored a victory. I'm going to have a judge at home. Man of the state. Well, Mama went down and got a dozen little creamy mint glasses. Brought them home. I couldn't wait till I got home from dinner. I said, is dinner ready? She said, no, I said, I'll have one. She said, all right. We got out those damn little symbols. <laughs> we poured one down the hat. I said, dinner already yet? She said, no. I said, we'll have another. We'll drink like the cotton levels do. So she said, all right. We had another. Dinner was ready by that time. And I didn't want to eat any. I wanted to get it over because I knew you had to drink after dinner to aid digestion. After dinner, I said to Mother, I'll, I'll call her this next one. I wanted to get out in the kitchen and get at that jug, see. <laughs> I went out of the kitchen, poured those two, and took a good slug myself and came back in. I said, isn't it fine? No. Drinking at home like people should. By midnight, the quart of cream immense was gone. Now, if you've never been sick from drinking, Well, my friends, I hope I haven't said anything that has offended anybody here tonight. I, uh, I'm so damned happy that I'm alive. Not only sober, but just alive. And I'm very grateful to my God. I'm not a very holy guy. Don't pretend to be. I go to church a little better than I used to. I'm like the guy who used to steal automobiles and now steal kitty cars. I'm a little better than that. I go with the Yank once in a while, because I want him to go. I think great, wonderful things can come from homely, humbling old prayers. I don't think they need to be done in fancy language. I think any petition to Almighty God for anything, whether it's your drinking problem or any other problem, will do the trick. 
I think you've got to keep trying. You know, some great writer once said, the only difference between a great saint and a great sinner was that the great saint kept trying. And I'm so grateful that I can keep trying. And I'm grateful to you for inviting me here today. Every weekend for the past week, it's eight weekends I've been gone. Next weekend, I'll be home with my family. It's kind of going to be a great holiday. I then go for another six weekends. I'm very grateful that I have the opportunity. I think it's the price that some of us lawyers have to pay to stay sober. I know I got to work awfully hard at AA to stay sober. And I, I'm very grateful that so many of you have been so kind to invite me. I hope that none of us ever get so smug as to think that we're great guys because we quit drinking. Because in truth and fact, nothing that we have done has contributed toward our sobriety. We have the same body and the same mind that we had when we were drinking. So we can't really take any credit. But if we ever do get to that type of thinking, we need then only look to the life of another alcoholic, even see Foster, and then cherish the possession that Almighty God has given to, to us. You know, Foster died at the age of 37 in Bellevue Hospital of mortal wounds that he had received in the Bowery basement in the slums of New York. And on his body were no material possessions except a little child's pocketbook. And inside of that pocketbook on a torn scrap of paper were written perhaps the words of a new song, the gold of friendship. And that's what we've got, the gold of friendship in AA. And I like to think of Foster as being the typical alcoholic because I can see in the words of his song, My Own Kentucky Home, the great love he had for beauty, the great love he had for his home, and yet, the tears of his wife. You know the words go, the sun shines bright in my old Kentucky home. His summer, the darkies are gay. The corn stalks ripe, and the meadows are in bloom, and the birds make music holiday. Weep no more, my lady. Oh, weep no more today. We shall sing one song of my old Kentucky home, of my old Kentucky home far away. Foster didn't have the same chance that you and I have had. What a great AA Foster would have been. His heritage to mankind were the melodies that he stored like jewels in the hearts of millions of God's children, jewels of which they couldn't be robbed and jewels that they travel with them all over the world. In the palace of American genius, there have been many knights and nobles, but the prince of the purple chamber lay dead when Stephen C. Foster gently laid his weary head in the gentle arms of his maker and joined the old folks at home who had gone before. And speaking a song, Hal Badger's been actually the singer song. 
jock on your buttons, I'm going to do it. We got a little hang song up in the morning. It's not an official hang song. We don't sell it. If you drop us a note, we'll send you a copy for free. Compliments of our club. And here it is. Each day by day for me, day I found the light sublime. A prayer I say twelve steps each day. showing inability to control his drinking can do the right about face and drink like a gentleman our hats are off to him evan knows we have tried hard enough and long enough to drink like other people there are some some of the, here are some of the methods we have tried drinking beer only limiting the number of drinks never drinking alone never drinking in the morning drinking only at home never having it in the house never drinking during business hours drinking only at parties switching from scotch to brandy drinking uh, only natural wines, agreeing to resign if ever drunk on the job, taking a trip, not taking a trip, swearing off forever with or without a solemn oath, taking more physical exercise, reading inspirational books, going to house farms and sanitariums, accepting voluntary commitment to asylums. We could increase the list at infinitum. Thank you guys. Hey family, Fernando, alcoholic. Fernando. The 12 traditions of Alcoholic Anonymous. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. Two, for a group purpose is the one ultimate authority a loving God who may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for AA membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues. Three, start drinking. Four, each group should be autonomous except in matters affecting other groups or AA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the alcoholic research sufferers. Six, an AA group I never endorse, finance, or lend the AA name to any related facility or outside enterprise less problems of money, property, and proceeds divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, Every AA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Alcoholics Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, 
AA as such, I'll never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10. Alcoholic Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the AA name I'll never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always to maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all the traditions ever remind us to place principles before personalities. Lisa now, with a chick. Okay. Lisa? Hey! I hear... I don't know. Hola! My name is Lisa and I'm truly an alcoholic. Thank you very much. Uh, do we have any newcomers here this evening that would like to take a uh, welcome chip? Somebody with 29 days or less, come on up. All right. Yay, I get to get welcome. my chips out. We also celebrate birthdays. Uh, do we have anybody here with one year? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty? Okay. <laughs> I love how you do that. Uh, do we have any birthdays tonight? I asked and we don't have any as far as I know. I'd be happy to celebrate you. All right, well, thank you so much for letting me be of service. I made a chocolate cake with some white frosting, and now we'll have someone come up with uh, to speak about the phone list tonight. Thank you, Lisa. somebody else coming up here. Hello, my name is Rachel. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Rachel. And we do have literature at this meeting. Um, over to the table on your guys' left, my right, um, we have softbound literature free for the taking, and we also have big books, um, and 12 and 12. If you need um, a book, please come see me. Any literature, please come see me. Thank you for letting me be of service. All right. Okay, thank you very much. My name's Al. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. I'm glad to be here sober uh not drinking uh i'm a 10 minute speaker so right now i've got uh, 10 minutes going down to nine uh i just like to say i, I i'm a grateful alcoholic because I, i've got a, a program and uh 
For me, uh, the first step uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous is uh, admitting defeat. Uh, the 12 and 12 says, who cares to admit uh, complete defeat? So the, the removal of the obsession to drink uh, happened for me uh, when I was dry and I felt so guilty because I was stealing money from my brother, I made an amends. And as I recall, that's when the obsession left me. Now, I don't know how you can get the obsession to drink removed, except whatever your version of being in complete de defeat means. For me, it meant uh, making an amends. And then also, my wife left me with five kids. Uh, and uh, that shook me up uh, quite a bit. Uh, that was uh, a part of my defeat. So the obsession to drink uh, is really key. And if you have the obsession to drink, uh, get one of these guys that, that know the program and you can just tell them you have the obsession to drink. Uh, give them a call. There's, lots, there's a numbers list you can call. You know what? If you have a person in mind and you don't get through to them, just go down to the next one and the next one and the next one until you get somebody. And you know what? I found out that you get the right answer that way. I don't know. It's serendipity. You know, it's kind of like a little miracle that happens. I had that happen to me. I went down a list. I wanted to call one person, but I couldn't get through to him. And I, I uh, went down the list and I got the guy and he made complete uh, sense. And uh, so... Um, you know, practicing the program, I think the, the real anchor is, the beginning is, losing that obsession to drink. And uh, I don't know how many people here sitting here have an obsession to drink. If you're going back out and drinking and you don't want to, uh, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Uh, to want to go back out and drink uh, when you don't want to, I would say, if I were in that condition, I'm out of control. Uh, I'm not in control of this thing. It has complete control over me. So the first step uh, was very important in my uh, sobriety. Uh, I have not had an obsession for, to drink for a long, long time. And uh, even when I was doing uh, uh, naughty things, uh, you know, uh, as far, I, I still didn't have that obsession to drink. You know, uh, it says uh, somewhere in the book, the road gets narrower. And, uh, you know, so at first it was pretty broad. And then as, as my uh, uh, sober years uh, uh, unfolded, the, uh, the road got more and more narrow. Now the road is pretty narrow, but with all, all things, my higher power is, it's possible to get uh, anything done that I need to get. Now I'm 77 years old, I'm married, I have a peaceful home. You know, having a peaceful home is very, very important to me. And so what I've learned to say to my wife is, uh, you may be right, 
<laughs> yes, dear. I'm going to the other room for a few minutes. <laughs> you know, uh, to keep the peace. Uh, like the guy said, would you rather be uh, right or would you rather be peaceful? So uh, uh, that's about all I have to say about step one. So I think my time is about up. Uh, all the way from the 18th century, we have Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr for our main speaker tonight. Aaron? Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm not really Aaron Burr. I'm Burr Middleton, okay? And I've been a drunk for a long, long time. I'm not drunk now. But like I said, I've been a drunk for a long, long time. Let me see the hands of former bar drinkers or bottle babies in the audience. Do we have any here? But you're in the right place. Now, my dear friend who brought me into this particular situation this evening, Mr. Les, who's sitting up front, tells me that we want to know what it used to be like, what happened, and how it is today. First of all, I have to announce this. I'm 82 years of age. How in the hell I became 82, I don't know. <laughs> especially through that sea of alcohol that I was in for 55, count them, 55 years of drinking. So I stopped when I was 71. That was on September 14th, 2012. So far, everything is great. I haven't had a drink since. Don't you think it was about time that I stopped at 71 after having ruined everything for 55 years? They also say there's such a thing as a functioning alcoholic. What the hell is a functioning alcoholic? <laughs> yes, I worked all through those years, but I did terrible work. I had terrible hangovers, the shakes, like we all have had. I really don't like a lot of drunkologues out of me because I've heard so many drunkologues. I've been in this program since I was 16 years of age. Now let me tell you how it all started. Who can remember that marvelous elixir called Olympia beer. Anyone? Anyone remember Olympia beer? It comes from the state of Washington, our brothers and sisters up there, up north. It's the tum water that makes it good. That used to be their catchphrase in advertising, the tum water that makes it good. First of all, it is pure schwill and swill, all right? For you beer drinkers, and that was my drug of choice, there's no body to that beer. It's like drinking water. Can after can after can. Here I am, 16 years old. But remember, I had the first one, and the first one is what got me hooked. It kept me hooked on and off all of those years. Now, I also used various excuses to drink. Does anyone know what I'm talking about, using the excuse to drink? It's a kind of an easy thing to do, especially if you're a family person or whatever. Well, when I was 18 years old, a terrible thing happened to me. My dear mother, who I truly loved, committed suicide. Not a very pleasant situation. Now, I used to tell people that started me off. That didn't start me off. I was drinking two or three years before my mother ever died. That was just a phony excuse to pile it on. Next, at the age of 22, I get involved in this little conflict that we had in Southeast Asia. You may have read about it in all the papers. I happen to be in a spot called Cambodia. Ah, but we were never in Cambodia, were we? Actually, 
I was down from Laos, right on the Laotian border and the upper part of Cambodia. And we were combat folks. We're not going to go into details because AA meetings are not for the details. But you can imagine what the details were. It so happens that I had a father who never raised me. I was raised by my crazy show business mother. She used to be a Goldwyn girl, by the way, at the old Goldwyn Studios, a wonderful showgirl. And her father, here's a little history, my grandfather's, his name was Charles Middleton. He was a well-known character actor. If you remember the old Flash Gordon serials, he played Ming the Merciless with that Fu Manchu mustache and the bald head. Now that was my mother's father. My mother's mother was a vaudevillian from the old days of vaudeville. And those two folks, my grandmother and grandfather, had this great vaudeville act. But my father's parents, who were non-actors, non-show business people, lived right over here where my hand is pointing right now, Pasadena Avenue and Foothill Boulevard. It's that beautiful old house over on the left-hand corner. So I would spend every summer as a youth here in Glendora. And unfortunately, through her lifetime, my mother had various bouts with mental illnesses that would put her into sanitariums and things like that. She was one of the first guinea pigs in the state of California to experience shock treatment, electric shock treatment. Folks, that's not the way to go, okay? Believe me, I was there. I watched a lot of that stuff. But when she would have these bouts, then I'm off to Glendora, beautiful, lovely Glendora at that time. There were only 3,500 or 4,000 people in this town. That's all. And they were either from Texas, Arkansas, or Oklahoma. They followed each other out here, and they made their little community here. What do we have here in Glendora now? 50,000? Something like that. Pretty close to it. So, I'm getting a little bit off the alcoholic situation, but remember, I'm drinking now. I'm 16 years old, and I'm drinking through all of these situations. And, of course... I think that it's normal. I think that everybody drinks the way I did. Well, they didn't. Now, when I say beer, I mean gallons of beer. Sure, it took a lot to get me drunk because, as we well know, the only saving grace that beer has is that it's mainly water. I wasn't drinking that hard stuff. I never did drugs because I've been in the jazz music industry, among other industries all of my life, and I saw what drugs did to other people. And I was a fraidy cat. I stuck to that good old, that good old sticky kid stuff. And believe me, I did a lot of it. I saw a career fade, a career that started out well. By the way, I've been married to the same woman for 56 years. Now that is her doing. Anyone else would have left me a million years ago. That woman, that lovely little woman, she's about 74 now, she said, if I knew what an alcoholic you were, I would never have married you. Because she was just an innocent 18-year-old girl when I married her, overseas. All right, let's go back to the military. Has anybody seen Oliver Stone's picture, Platoon? Anybody? It's a masterpiece. I think you know that the role that... Uh, Mr. Charlie Sheen played was actually, that's Oliver's story. You know, there was a lot of hell raised within the ranks of the military at that time, both with booze and with drugs. Washington did not like that picture at all, 
because it showed the GIs to be what they really were at that time. By the way, this is not me braggadocio or whatever, but it just so happens that I narrated the movie Nixon for Oliver Stone, all right? And that was another party time. Here's another thing. Back in those drinking days, and probably in your drinking days too, you make such terrible decisions. Think about the rash, awful decisions that you've made. Now you've heard doctors tell you that you may be sober for a month or a month and a half, but you still have that stuff swishing around in your brain somewhere and manufacturing these little things in your body. So you're gonna make a rash decision, you're gonna sign off your home, you're gonna sign off your business or whatever because your brain is not functioning like it was meant to function. Anybody agree with me on that one? I didn't preface this by telling you that there's some things that I'm going to say tonight that are my personal opinions and personal opinions only. You may not agree with them. It's just me and the way I look at it. Now, AA got me sober. Folks like you gathered right here tonight. But, and this, this word or the two words higher power, which we hear in this in these meetings all the time, that would be what we used to call the man upstairs. And don't get me wrong, I'm not throwing religion at you. This is not a, this is not a religious camp meeting, it's an AA meeting. But a combination of AA and that higher power have kept me sober low these almost 11 years. I didn't get to the fact where I couldn't function and I couldn't work and that sort of thing because suddenly when I was really down down on the pavement, and I mean down on the pavement, for work, for my relationship with my son and my wife and my family and so on and so forth, suddenly a little light bulb went on in my head and I stopped. And you know the old story, you stop, you stop for six months, you stop for 12 months, you stop for 14 months, and what happens? I went right back out there again. What triggered it? I don't know. I can't, I can't tell you what triggered it. it it just, I was gone. And when I was gone, I was gone for six months, eight months, 12 months, and then right back, sobriety. Sobriety was the phrase of the day and AA, stayed sober for several years, went back out, in, out, in, out. You know the story. Until, I just told you the date, you can look at it, September 14th, 2012, I think, the man upstairs or the higher power, it's either a he or a she, by the way. Well, it's probably a she, as far as I know. Said, so this boy has had enough, this boy here. And that was it. Now, at 82, why would I want to get drunk? First of all, I don't know how the hell I'd handle it. I don't think I could handle it very well. You know, I'd probably be falling down after one drink or something. And there's all this stuff about when you first stop, you say to yourself, Oh, I'm not going to have any fun anymore. I'm not going to be with the gang. What, what is fun? Being pulled over by the police and arrested for a 502? I've had three of them. I had one in Dallas, Texas. Two here from the Highway Patrol here in California, in Los Angeles. And believe me, you do not want to be in jail for a drunk driving arrest in Dallas, Texas. Because those big Texas cops, and they're all about six feet seven, they really throw the book at you. Uh, I made a mistake. By the way, I was in the same cell block where 
Lee Harvey Oswald was <laughs> when Jack Ruby blew him away, unfortunately, after the uh, JFK assassination. So innocently, I went over to a water cooler just to, you know, bend over and take a drink of water. And this big Texas cop came down on me with a telephone book. By the way, a telephone book doesn't leave any scars or bruises. It's, it's an old police trick. Sorry, I'm, I'm offending any police uh, policeman in the audience. He said, hey, boy, did I tell you you could have that water? And I said, uh, no, sir. Well, get back in that cell. That's the way it goes in Texas. They don't take any guff. Okay. I'm rambling, I know, but there's a lot of things up in my head that have been going on all those 55 years. Now then, after my mother's suicide, I'm 19 years old. I turned 19 the following month. And at that time, I was really drinking hard. I didn't care about anything. The world could, I, I just, I, I wanted to be out of it. So I go up to Las Vegas, and at that time, there were two mobs that ran Vegas. The Italian mob run by Johnny Roselli, who I worked for, and the Jewish mob uh, run by a man named Mo Dalitz. And Mo Dalitz was from Cleveland. And Mo Dalitz was a pretty rough character. Now what they called me up there, and I'm not trying to pull a tough guy act on you or anything, because trust me, I'm not a tough guy at heart. I called myself an enforcer slash entertainer. Now that's kind of an odd thing to figure out. Now, an enforcer is not a hitman, okay? We all know what a hitman is. An enforcer is the lovely guy who usually has a big guy along with him who comes up to your hotel room when you haven't settled up your gambling debt with the house, and he gives you two warnings. You better settle your debt. Now, the third warning, that's when you break his legs or his arms. Isn't that lovely? And Mo, I'm 19 years old learning all this. Mo Dalitz told me, he brought me into the audience and he said, hey kid, are you an enforcer or are you an entertainer? I said, I'm both, I, you know, I can do both. He said, no you can't. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're an alcoholic, right? I said, how'd you know that? He said, I'm watching you kid. He said, I see how you drink at our parties. You don't drink like normal people drink. He said, now, a gambler has the same disease that you have only it's gambling, not alcohol. So you and uh, Stubby, our great brute here, you may have broken some guy's legs six months ago, but that doesn't stop the guy from coming back to Las Vegas with his wife, just like the alcoholic going back to booze, and he's going to gamble again. So he's going to walk in and see you singing in some lounge up there and say, wait a minute, that's the guy that had my legs broken six months ago. He's going to go to the cops, the cops are going to go to the FBI, and the FBI is going to close down Vegas, and that's the end of it. So you're going to make your mind up. You're going to be an enforcer or an entertainer. I said, I'll take entertainer. So that got me out of the tough guy business. This is still a Las Vegas tie that I'm wearing after all these years. I still dress like a Las Vegas hood. By the way, it's hood, not hood. Hood for hoodlum. Just, just so you get that straight. Not a way to go. But when you're drinking booze like that, you make these stupid decisions. You see somebody on the screen. Remember back in the old days, uh, well, not, this is a fairly young audience here, but always on the old days, the hero or the heroine, and I don't mean heroin addict, I mean a woman who was a hero, they're always smoking or drinking. You ever notice Humphrey Bogart always has a cigarette 
or seven cigarettes in his mouth when he does this, or any, any of the actresses or whatever. That was means of sophistication. It was sophisticated to be a drunk. Well, it's not sophisticated to be a drunk. We all know that. Now, one thing that I want to say, and I was thinking about it last night, this program is the greatest thing, first of all, on the planet that's ever battled alcoholism. Beverly Hills, by the way, I'm wearing the Beverly Hills Polo Club out here. There's no such thing as a Beverly Hills Polo Club, my friends. That's like saying the Palm Springs Yacht Club. I mean, you know, <laughs> give me a break. Uh, and I've lost my train of thought, which I do, because they call it a senior moment. But uh, what happens is, if you don't make up your mind personally that you want to stop drinking, I hate to say this, and a lot of you are going to disagree with me, and you know, please don't hate me. This program is not going to help you. You've got to make your mind up. It has to be within you that you want to stop. And why do you want to stop? Well, you know, you throw up in the morning. You've fought with your wife or your husband or your boyfriend or your girlfriend. You've ruined your business associates. Uh, everything has gone down the drain. You've lost anything that was near and dear to you. Isn't it fun to be a drunk? <laughs> we used to have a saying in the program, good news for drunks. Well, the good news for drunks is AA. And I just want to say the old cliche, trust me now, you are in the right place. You are in the right place. And if you're a newcomer, I think I remember a few newcomers coming up to this microphone here just a few moments ago. Please stay with it. Don't think we're a bunch of old fogies who don't have any fun, because we do have a lot of fun around here. Hell, I know it's a serious disease, and it is a serious disease. It's your life. How do you want to live the rest of your life? Do you want to live the rest of your life like you've lived it so far? Don't worry, I'm not going to use the F word. But you F it up, right? Haven't you? I did. I mean, I was up in Nowheresville. That's the way it was. What happened? Suddenly, after all those years, I talked to the man upstairs. I read the big book. By the way, that big blue book has more information than you'll ever find anywhere about this program. You know, there are many doctors, many fine doctors, who still don't understand this disease. They don't have a clue. That book has a clue. That tells it like it is. We used to have an old expression. It borders on the religious, but the old expression was, I'm going to tell you what the Lord told John. Now, that's a real old-time expression, okay? That, that goes back to the 1920s. So I am going to tell you that you are in the right place. And I just got to the, the point where I surrendered. There are some meetings. We have them in Van Nuys. By the way, I don't live in Glendora. I live in the marvelous city of Van Nuys, which is now the gang capital of the San Fernando Valley. <laughs> Let me tell you something. In beautiful Glendora, and I love Glendora, I'm always out here for the holiday stroll. Anyone participate in the holiday stroll in November? And then I come back for the Christmas parade, and I ride in the Christmas parade, thanks to the folks at the Glendora Historical Society. We ride on one of those great old uh, fire engines. And now I'm here because I told Les I'd be here. And you better adhere to Les. Just let me tell you that right now. All right.
Uh, it's just, it has to be within you. In my clubhouse in Van Nuys, which is called the Valley Club, the infamous Valley Club, if you've ever heard of it. We had a big fist fight in there about a week ago. And we don't want to go into that one. It's, it's pretty rough out there, man. It, like I say, it's, it's the gang capital of the San Fernando Valley. But it is interesting. You do meet some interesting characters out there. On the wall was a picture of Albert Einstein, the great Albert Einstein, and it's the famous shot of him where he's up to the blackboard with the chalk and he's writing the uh, theory of relativity. Uh, now some wiseacre in, in AA has changed the caption. And that's actually what, you know, what Einstein was really writing on the blackboard. But the caption reads, if you don't drink, you won't get drunk. <laughs> well, if it comes from Einstein, man, I mean, Einstein was a pretty, pretty hip, hip nifty cat, wasn't he? I think so. Let's go back to the jazz. The jazz that I've played through the years. I work with some very fine players. And of course, unfortunately, in the modern jazz field, the big thing was always drugs. And they always scared me because I, I watched people go downhill. Us old Dixielanders, we, you know, we were hardcore boozers. We were whiskey bottle throwers and gin bottle throwers and that type of stuff. So that takes care of that situation. We've taken care of the Las Vegas situation, which I got out of. I go back to the days when Sinatra was up there and Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin and the old Rat Pack. Now I go up to Las Vegas and I look on the strip. I don't recognize any of those people. They're all hip hop artists. <laughs> hip hop, I like it, but it's not about my form of music. Anyway, we've covered the conflict in Southeast Asia. Uh, I've told you what happened. From the bottom of my heart, and some of you probably think this guy doesn't have a sincere bone in his body. It's not true. I, I really do have. From the bottom of my heart, I hope that you'll stay, you newcomers, in this program. Because I think probably you've gotten to the point where you know you can't handle it. That stuff, meaning alcohol, was made for a very, very small percentage of people. They use it as a social lubricant. They may have one or two drinks at a party. Who the hell ever had one or two drinks? <laughs> you ever met somebody for lunch and they say, well, we're going to have a wine. And you know what? That's what they have. They have one glass of wine and they don't have anything else. Those are what we call normies. You've heard that term. We're not normies. You know that by now. I mean, I, 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 I just can't even believe the amount of booze that I fractured myself with all of those years for nothing, for no gain. And the reason why in the beginning of this so-called spiel, I said, uh, are there any bottle babies out there are bar drinkers? Now for you bar drinkers, have you ever sat down really and figured out how much that habit would cost you on a yearly basis? I did. It cost me from five to $7,000 a year to drink in bars. And that's beer bars, not fancy cocktail lounges. My 502s, the last 502 I got, I was 
very sad about Mother's Day because I was thinking about my mother and how she passed and so on and so forth. Now, you're going to love this one. So I got together with a good friend of mine, and I, I went into a supermarket. By the way, when I used to be sober for long periods of time, when I'd go into supermarkets, suddenly something would come over me, and I, you know, I'd start to shake and everything, because I'd see a rack, and it would say, uh, 24 cans of beer for 277. Boy, I, was, I just couldn't wait to get to it, even though it was warm beer. You had to take it home and, and chill it. Well, anyway, on this particular Mother's Day, I, I tried this awful, awful stuff. And I hope one of the representatives isn't here this evening. I doubt if they are. It's called Paps Blue Ribbon. You ever heard of it? it, it it's the worst beer that was, it, it's like Lucky Lager. Or it's the worst possible beer that could ever be brewed, but it's cheap and it does the job. So I was so proud of myself. I paid something like two seventy-five for a 12-pack. And of course, I proceeded to drink that entire 12-pack. I got on the road about 2 o'clock in the morning, driving from Santa Monica back over the 405 to Van Nuys, where I live. And naturally, that was my last deuce. A highway patrol pulled me over. It was a motorcycle officer who was just getting off duty, but he happened to be following me, and he noticed that I was driving too carefully. Have you ever heard of that? You can drive too carefully. Something's wrong with that, the way I was changing lanes and everything. So he pulled over, so that little 275, I think that's what I said it was for a 12-pack, that cost me seven dollars to $8,000. Uh, my insurance went up for seven years. I had to pay for all these drunk driving schools that I had to go through. That's more money. So you could probably total it up to about a $10,000 deal. Think what you can buy for $10,000. You can really treat yourself, you know? That was my big evening, big evening with the Paps Blue Ribbon 12-pack. And that's when I just said to myself, it was so awful, because I wound up once again in the Van Nuys Jail over on Sylvan Street. Why am I doing this to myself? Why have I been doing this to myself all of my life? It doesn't make sense. It's, it's utter insanity. It is absolute insanity. Just sit down and think about it for a while. Now, I'm not talking about a beer bust when you get together with the guys and the gals down at the beach and you're frolicking in the sun and that type of stuff. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about hardcore drinking, whether it's wine, uh, gin, bourbon, beer, or whatever. Whatever you think does the job for you. It doesn't work. We weren't made for it. Folks right here under this tarp here, we, we just weren't made for it. Our bodies don't handle it. Our brains don't handle it. But it takes forever to finally figure that out. And that's what happened to me. I did figure it out. How is it today? This is not braggadocio again, and I'm not about to rattle off a bunch of credits or anything. That's to me like listening to a drunkalog. Aren't drunkalogs really boring, though, most of them? They really are. Let's think about it. Because they're all the same. We've all had the same, usually. Today... I'm still working. Uh, I did, I don't know if any of you have seen this biopic on Elvis Presley. It came out a couple of months ago. Uh, we did all kinds of voices in that. I'm still in the voiceover game. I still character act for a while, and, and I still, I play in Canada, I play in Japan, and I also play down under in Australia. We play jazz music, we go on tours down there. Of course, COVID has cut that right in half, even more in half, maybe let's say a quarter. 
but we're coming back now. I don't plan to retire today. This comes under the heading of how it is today. If my health tells me in a few years that I'm going to retire, naturally I'll have to retire. By the way, I'm looking for real estate. Any of you are realtors out there, whatever, in Glendora. Because Glendora is really where I want to retire in a few years. I'm not going to be able to do what I do right now five to ten years from now if I'm even around. So I want a little cottage in Glendora, just a nice little cottage, not a three-bedroom, two-car garage. I just You know what a little cottage looks like. Even if the living room could double as a bedroom, too. My wife that I've been married to for 56 years, she wouldn't mind. Here lies the rub. These little cottages in Glendora are eight or nine hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of my story. I've kind of run out of steam. I hope that I didn't bore you to death. And in closing, I do want to say this. Again, I'm repeating myself, and it's not my age that's doing that. Please, if you're a newcomer, try this. What the hell do you have to lose? You tried the other for years and years, and it didn't work, did it? All you have to do is give that stuff up. There's an amazing amount of fun that you can have if you're still young, if you're not drinking. You can have the time of your lives. If you just get it in your so-called noggins, and noggin is a real old-time expression. For those of you who don't know what it means, it means you're ahead. If you can get it through your brain, you're going to stop. Bang! I know it's hard. You're going to have to taper off. I did it the hard way because I'm a hard old bastard. Okay, now that's the worst <laughs> word that I've used tonight, but that's what I am. I did it cold turkey. I do not suggest that. I really don't. You have to taper off. You get into AA, which you are right now. You get yourself a sponsor. You get the big book, the big blue book. I don't see it up here. Usually it's on, on a stand. But well, one other thing. Some of the meetings that we have in the valley, even though it's dangerous around there, we have a white flag out there that stands for the flag of surrender. Because that's what you've done. You, you've surrendered. You've had it. You don't want it anymore. So you get yourself a sponsor. If you have someone that you have to talk to about this disease, look at this, look at this crowd that we have here tonight. We're all experts. We're absolute experts on alcoholism. No one knows more about alcoholism than we do. It's a fact. Even the doctors come to the meetings, keep coming to the meetings. You get to know people. You get to like people. You get to have fun. In the summertime, I don't know what this group does in the summer, whether they have big bonfires or whatever, or take trips to the beach or so on and so forth, or, uh, the Lord only knows. But AA is not the end of your life. It's not a drone, heavy sort of a thing. It can be a happy thing. And your lives can be 10 times, maybe 25 times better than you've ever known them to be. Listen, at this point, that booze, all that booze, no matter what it is, I wouldn't even wash my socks with it, let alone drink it. Okay? So that's all from me, and, and I wish you well, and the old cliche of Godspeed, and so on and so forth. And please, here is our edict. Keep coming back. It works. Thank you. Let's give Alan Burr a hand for a great meeting.
Yeah. I'm your grapevine rep. We got any grapevines to turn back in? I gave a lot out. Oh, you're all takers. That's okay. We got a lot to give. You know, and uh, two years for 54 bucks, one year, cut it in half, and uh, give it give it, give it, it away to a recovery house, a, to a newcomer, to somebody that's in lockdown, uh, meeting in a, in a print, you can't beat it. You know, and uh, Tina, where are you? Come on, bring the stuff. We got a couple books we want to raffle off. What do we got? Oh, we got some vintage material. Yes, oh my goodness. What is this? Oh, this is real vintage. Hey. This is like, it doesn't even have a cover. It's the 24 hours. <laughs> Wow, okay. Pick one. Pick one. Oh, and then we have a pass it on. Pass it on. Okay, the ticket is 161522. 161522. Oh, wait a minute. I have a couple in my pocket. Sorry. <laughs> Pick another one. Right. Wow. Come on. Recount. It's not me. Um, yeah, it's not me. Jesse. Go ahead. Give him that. 16, 15, 22. 16, 15, what? 22. Going once. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got it. He's got it. All right. All right. Does he need this vintage uh, 24 hours? 24 hours. All right. Okay, next one. And, and it probably has some underline in there. It looks like a real old timer with that. He is an old timer. That was jeans. That was jeans. Nostalgia. Okay, 16, 16, and 28. 16, 16, and 28? Here, 16, 15. Wow, look at this. Look at this. It's almost, it's almost an un, it's unmarked vintage pass it on. This is Bill's story from, from the time he was born until his death. That's a history book, and it's actually really good. If you want to read the history, there's, three books. It's Pass It On and then Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers and then AA Comes of Age. So you will kind of want to read it in that in that uh, sequence. Character one, character two. Boy, we got a character here tonight. I'd like to hear him read the big book. Right? Did you read it? I thought I heard, I thought I recognized his voice. He, he was the reader for the um, big book. Okay. Are we going to, years ago he says. Thank you for letting me be of service. Thank, Thank you. you so much for um, participating in our raffle each week. We have um, a few more books. Next week we'll have...
Joe and Charlie. We have a couple of um, tapes, cassettes, and, and um, different things. So thank you so much. Thanks. I'm going to talk about it. We need help cleaning up afterwards. And if you're interested in participating in our meeting and you want to be of service, see me or uh, Fernando afterwards. And let's give uh, a hand to, to the cookers and the, all the people that brought food. Yes, yes. And... Uh, with that, uh, Mike, you want to come up and read the, the closing right. prayer? The promises here. Right. It's right at the end. I can't. I've got all these, these gloves on. I cannot. There we go. Where's our promises? Huh? Open that. It should be right here at the end. There, you can do it. I can't do it. All right, thank you. Hey everybody, I'm an alcoholic, my name is Mike. And here are the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we blah. We have gone. We'll see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of useless, uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose self, interest in, in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook on life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. After a moment of silence for the alcoholic and for the family members who are still suffering, Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. All right. Keep coming back, everybody. Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.